It's July 23rd, 2020. This is Rook. Today, a personal perspective from a man who was directly involved in the 1979 revolution in Iran, was then forced to escape and went on to be a prominent professor in America over the last four decades. He was first jailed at the age of 16, but author, educator, and former Iranian ambassador to the United Nations, Mansour Farhang's commitment to human rights remains unabated at the age of 84. He joins me for a feature interview, plus the Rook Roundtable is ready in studio and convenes to discuss. This is stories from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. to episode number 29 of Rook. Khoshomadin. Khoshomadin. Yes. Thank you, Shia. I just reflexively look at you now to see whether you're giving me a dirty look or not. If I've said the right consonant at the end of Khoshomadin, deed. Uh, I am I am ready and raring to go. I have had a lot of coffee. I am super caffeinated. I'm full of kahve. Half of my body composition is kahve right now. Uh, it is a big Thursday show. The gang is here. Captain Reza, hello to you. Hello, Mr. Gomeshi. Uh, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> calling me the by my dad's name. Uh, the fabulous Keon. Wow, I have a new title. The fabulous the Keon. The fabulous Keon. I TFK. Like it. Okay, yeah. I'll let that. I'll allow it. Uh, Okay, thank you, <laughs> Fabulous Keon. And by the way, I can't say Fabulous Keon. It's the Fabulous Keon. It has to be That's a, it's, yes. it's always, you know, it's not like Captain Reza, Fabulous. It's the Fabulous the Keon. Fab- Just like so that. you know. Great. Yeah. I'll write that down. Uh, Groovy Shia, hello. Hello. Groovy. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm great. Oh, okay. How are you? Um, well, oh, thank you. Full of coffee. <laughs> I'm full of coffee. I'm full yeah. of coffee. And returning to our Rook Roundtable for this week, we're going to have the roundtable in a little while. Nilu Gorashi. Hello, Nilu. Hi. Nice to see you again. We, I'll give you a proper introduction a little later in the program. I, um, I am very much looking forward to a chat with our featured guest on this episode, Mansour Farhang. You guys will be joining me in uh, just a few moments. He is a a long-time educator and human rights campaigner. He's also kind of a piece of history who was first arrested in the 1950s as a 16-year-old carrying around documents supporting Mossadegh in Iran at the time. Uh, He was then the ambassador to the United Nations in the first weeks of the revolution in 1979. Of course, he then ended up escaping and saving his life, uh, uh, which is in itself quite a tale when many of his contemporaries were executed. He is an author of some pretty important books. He's 84 years old. 
Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, we'll get to Mansur Farhang in just a few moments. Uh, I should also say our last episode with Shali Zomorodi, the Iranian-American broadcaster in San Diego, is still burning up our YouTube channel and our social media. I know you like that one, right? Keon, oh my the fabulous god! Keon. I adore her. What Who does she take? <laughs> Four kids, full time job, and just, just, I, I was smiling the entire interview. You could feel her energy as she was talking. We'll do it. We'll, this, we'll do this properly on the roundtable. But you're a longtime fan of I hers, am, right? For sure. And in fact, she's a former beauty queen. She is. And. So I have been looking up to this woman since I was a teenager. So I ha- a lot of my family lives in California. And for years they had been telling me, Kion, you should, you should be a broadcaster. You have the voice, you have the look. And look at Shally. She, uh, she did the beauty pageant and now she's a broadcaster. And also Nazanin Afshinjan was another example that I looked up to since I was a kid. So they were both the reason that I entered Miss Universe Canada back in 2015. I didn't win, of course, but that was kind of the gateway of how I started doing stuff like this. It's a nice story. I yeah. think Shali would appreciate hearing that, that, yeah. you, that she inspired you. Uh, and Nilu, you, you're also a fan of Shali. I, I am a big fan of Shali. I, I love her so much. I mean, I always have. Um, she also shares my mom's Rashti roots. <laughs> so it's really cute when I watch her on Instagram and sometimes she's like uh, playing Rashti music and like she's um, making Shomali food. I'm like, oh, some pro rash uh, nationalism, regionalism Thank you. playing itself Thank out you, right now. That's very yes. well. I want to hear more about your impressions of, of some of the things she had to say, too. We'll get to that on the Rook Roundtable. I should also uh, note that this episode of Rook is supported by York National Realty. Uh, a boutique real estate firm that uh, believes in giving back to the community and sees uh, uh, supporting us as giving back to the community. Thank you to Farid and Marion and his team. Um, uh, they deal in luxury homes, Kian. Maybe you should... Um, mm. Yeah, I'll let my parents Don't you, know. Aren't I, you always buying homes and I'm things? I'm a very humble woman. <laughs> my You're parents. You're a pretty luxurious woman. <laughs> I am Kian. not. Why look don't at me, you, why look don't at you, me right why now. Why don't you give I, back to the York National? I, 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 okay. Uh, I will, for giving back to I will, us. By. <laughs> I will advertise York National. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, our website is up. Yeah, Rookmedia.com. It's still got some kinks. We got to figure out some of it, but um, but uh, Rookmedia.com is now up. We'll talk about that uh, later in the show. So the whole gang, uh, stick around here. I want to right now first get to our featured guest. Whether we know it or not, the number one international factor impacting the lives of Iranian migrants across the world is the long-running hostilities between Tehran and Washington. It doesn't matter if you're a student at UCLA, an asylum seeker in Stockholm, an aspiring artist in Sydney, or an architect in Singapore, so long as you are Iranian or of Iranian descent, the chances are you have been affected by the animosity between Tehran and Washington in one way or another. So what lies at the center of this endless hostility? Well, my guest today has had a front row seat in the roller coaster of close encounters and missed opportunities that constitute the so-called post-revolution U.S.-Iran relations. As a high school student in Tehran, Mansour Farhang joined Amnesty International, and as a college student in the United States in the 1960s, he studied politics. Professor Farhang served as Revolutionary Iran's first ambassador to the United Nations, resigning in protest when the Khomeini regime refused to accept the UN Commission of Inquiry's recommendation to release American hostages in Tehran. 
Mansur Farhang fled Iran as a dissident in 1981, drawing the wrath of the regime and featuring on their hit list of hated dissidents. Since then, he has taught international studies at Bennington College, California State University at Sacramento, and Princeton University, where he was also a research fellow at the Center for International Studies. Professor Fadhang is the author of U.S. Imperialism from the Spanish-American War to the Iranian Revolution and the co-author of the U.S. Press and Iran, Foreign Policy and the Journalism of Deference. Currently, he is on the advisory board of Middle East Watch, a branch of Human Rights Watch. And right now, Mansur Farhang joins me from Vermont today. Hello, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I am very grateful to, to, to you for giving us this opportunity uh, to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. There is so much to get to when uh, given the chance to interview someone with your experience, but I want to touch on U.S.-Iran relations, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the changing nature and impact of those relations on those of us in the diaspora, and some of your most interesting uh, personal story as well. But if you will, let me just get some impressions from you about what's been in the news lately. How did you react at the news that has uh, lit up Persian social media in the last couple of weeks about the prospective execution of those three young men in Iran who were among the protesters last November? But regrettably, the Iranian regime has executed over 20,000 political dissidents over the past four years. And I would say overwhelming majority of these people were supporters of the revolution. That is, they dreamed that the revolution would lead to a democratic and pluralistic Iran. So this is the latest. I, I would say the regime over the past four years has significantly lost its popular base. Still, it has a popular base, whether it's probably 15 to 20 percent based on different uh, public opinion research done in Iran. But this opposition, it has both a political as well as an economic base. The latest demonstrations, three members participating in that demonstration have been converted to death sentence. Yes. It was fundamentally economically motivated due to unemployment, to massive expansion of inflation and joblessness and so forth. So what the regime is actually doing, if they actually go on and execute these people, it's a way of threatening others. It's part of the pressure to contain the growing resentment and opposition of the general public to the policies of the regime. And what is important to me is that there is a very... both outside and inside the country, a coordinated effort to pressure the Iranian regime. Both a number of foreign governments, including Denmark and Sweden, have written to the Iranian government not to do this. So this movement of supporting human rights, which is relatively new in Iran, the discourse of human rights was not all that powerful before the revolution. So in the, the movement to prevent these executions, to pressure the regime, is politically significant 
even if it doesn't succeed in terms of preventing the execution of these three individuals. You mentioned inside and outside of Iran. Let me ask you about outside of Iran, because it's not just governments that are putting pressure. It's it's citizens uh, in the diaspora, especially on social media. I don't know if you if you know, but the, the campaign on social media about these particular executions has been unprecedented in terms of millions of people using the hashtag no to executions and trying to speak out, trying to make a difference. Do you actually, I mean, it's it's long been the expectation that this regime is tone deaf, but do you think that kind of public uh, global um, exercise in social media actually makes a difference? It makes a difference if countries that Iran depend on with respect to trade relations, given the limited uh, options Iran has with respect to international relations and trade and so forth, it's conceivable. The Iran is, you see, the Iranian regime is, is spending a great deal of resources and time and money in its international propaganda. They have lobbyists in Washington. They have lobbyists all over uh, uh, Europe. So it means, for whatever reason, they care about their image. So to the extent that these uh, movements against execution or against repression in general can intensify the the opposition of the international community, particularly international human rights organizations. For example, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch are not even permitted to go to Iran. And every time they issue a report about human rights violations in Iran, the Iranian authorities, particularly the foreign ministry, respond by characterizing these organizations as Zionist or the CIA agent. So it's impossible to know uh, how effective it can be. But I don't think the effectiveness in the immediate effectiveness concerning these individuals is the only value or objective of this movement. The important thing is in Iran, we need at institutional, we need to institutionalize human rights movement, acceptance of pluralism and democratic values. And the latest incident, this massive movement in Europe, in America, all over the world, actually, as well as inside the country, in, uh, is very helpful. But whether it will result in saving these three individuals remains to be seen. But as a political act, it is immensely important. I said I want to talk about Iran and the United States. The, the it, let's go from Iran to the United States. The, 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 these are the two countries that you have essentially devoted your life uh, to in terms of the time you've spent uh, in both countries. And if we talk about the United States, uh, it's no secret that the, the, the America is in tumult as well currently. And and uh, Professor Farhang, there is growing chatter in Washington that if Donald Trump's chances for re-election continue to drop in the polls that this might increase the likelihood of some sort of deadly escalation with Iran, either a version of wag the dog or an opportunity to try to unite the American population at at the last minute behind uh, Trump by taking some kind of military action. Do you think this speculation has any weight to it? There is definitely some weight to it. Over the past three months, there have been numerous military attacks, a series of bombings and fires at Iran's military missile production and nuclear facilities. 
and to the extent that they have actually led to a general consensus among informed observers and experts that Israel and the United States have decided to damage Iran before the U.S. presidential election. That is, the attacks are part of a campaign of maximum pressure initiated by the Trump administration and Israel because they are assuming that if Joe Biden wins the election and he decides to rejoin the nuclear deal, Iran also given the economic pressure, it might be open to uh, negotiation to using diplomatic avenue and in order to prevent that, now the Israelis, it's very interesting that uh, a Middle Eastern official told the New York Times earlier this month that Israel's intelligence services were responsible for the nuclear facility explosion. And even the Israeli foreign minister uh, confirmed that virtually the way they do it. And in Iran, it's fascinating that the Iranian regime virtually denies or ignores these attacks. Because in the propaganda, they constantly threaten Israel. But when it comes to actual confrontation, they know that they are not able to retaliate. So Iran is really in a very difficult situation. They are also waiting and hoping that after uh, the election and if Biden wins the election, then at least they can go back to the nuclear deal. And that would lead to opening trade relations with European countries. I would say there, there is really a consensus that they should wait until the presidential election in the United States. So you do believe, that's where I wanted to go next. I mean, the orthodox thinking might be to expect that the Iranian regime is praying for a change in the U.S. administration in the upcoming federal uh, the presidential elections in the states, counting on some kind of reprieve from uh, a Biden administration or a return to the JCPOA. Is that is that wishful thinking by Khamenei, or is, is it Iran's only- No, I don't think so, because it, it is actually, in the first of all, a military attack on Iran only means destruction. It doesn't mean change of regime. And it will be devastating to the Iranian society and Iranian people. It could actually strengthen the control of the regime over the society. It might diminish and damage Iran's ability to influence uh, its influence in the region. But internally, it was a devastate. It will be a devastating blow to democracy and human rights movement because the United States is not going to send a million troops to Iran to change the regime but they can bomb the country they could even bomb residential areas as they did in in syria so it it will be uh, the military you know, option could increase the, the the sense of security of of israelis which i really like to talk about it in a different manner but yes there is this uh, uh, p- possibility if iran because uh, that I genuinely don't know to what extent Iran has the military capability to retaliate. But uh, is Iran able to use cyber warfare against targets in Israel that would really be damaging the Israeli society? If that happens, 
then we are going to observe retaliation from Israel. And in the, the American representatives has already said that the United States support the Israeli position. And if there is a military conflict, the United States will be on the side of Israel. Let me use that opportunity to zoom out and, and get a bigger picture from you on this. And I was almost laughing as I wrote this question uh, last night. Because how are, you, how are poor, poor you to try and have to answer this in a couple of minutes, the history of U.S. and Iran. But let me try it on you and see if you can give this to us in a small package. One of the ironies in the sad state of affairs between Tehran and Washington, as many Iranians know, is the reality that so many um, Iran experts have pointed to over the years. The fact that Iranians, and especially middle-class Iranians, are probably the most pro-American creed in the region, have been for years. The, the USA is the first choice for sending their children for education. Iranians love American cars, side-by-side uh, -side fridge freezers, movies, music, art, you know, the whole American lifestyle. So from your perspective, if you can, how have two nations so gravitated towards each other ended up in this seemingly endless confrontation? It's a wonderful question. The first statement I want to make in that regard, Western social and cultural norms and values have had very significant impact to Iranian urban middle class. It has been since the beginning of, of this 20th century. And I would say in comparison with other Middle Eastern countries, except, of course, Israel and Turkey, Iran has been very much influenced. And this uh, appeal, that, that is the Western lifestyle and norms and values of the West, while Iranians are very much find that appealing and they are influenced in their daily life, in their gender relationship and, and so forth. At the same time, they have been critical of American foreign policy, simply because of 1953. So that coup, you know, I, the first time I went to prison at the age of 16, yes. I was distributing uh, Mohammad Mossadegh's uh, defense in the court, which he sent it out of prison through his wife, and it was printed, and I was busted with 200 copies and spent close to three months in the juvenile hall <laughs> for that. This is, by so the way, in the 1950s, I should note for people. It's 19 no, 1953, exactly. Yes. But when, when I was busted, it was 1954. Yes. It was after his trial. So that, that coup has had a very profound impact on Iranian society in general, particularly the intelligentsia or the educated sectors. What I wish to add here, which is extremely important, the present regime has been extremely dishonest in this regard. Ayatollah Khomeini supported the coup. Ayatollah Burujerdi welcomed the Shah of Iran when he returned to the country from Iraq. Ayatollah Behbahani, Ayatollah Kashani, according to the latest documents released by Central Intelligence Agency and M16, they received money from Western intelligence agencies in order to uh, support the organizations and some uh, elements, their supporters and all that. And yet Khomeini in all his writings in all his speeches and interviews, has never mentioned Mossadegh's name or the coup. Only once, a reporter asked him what he thought about Mossadegh. He said, 
that man was slapped by God. That's the only thing. And yet, because they know that focusing on the 1953 coup is one way of mobilizing the public and creating anti-American sentiment, they constantly use that occasion. And whenever they talk about death to America and all that, there are some younger people who know nothing about 1953 and that period. They refer to the coup as the major reason for beginning of the confrontation between the United States and Iran. This is really fascinating. And very in Iran, and if I say these things based on solid evidence that Khomeini was opposed to Mossadegh and many Ayatollahs supported the coup, I will end up in jail and be tortured. And more than that, Khomeini and the present regime, they have been far more repressive to the pro-Mossadegh or the leftists in Iran that the Shah ever did. But when you say it, it, it dates back to that defining moment, that coup, which, of course, we know uh, the U.S. had a hand in and Mossadegh gets removed, 1953, Iran. There are two decades that follow where there ostensibly is harmony between the United States and Iran, right? That's right. But it was because of the Shah's repressiveness, his legitimacy came under question. Legitimacy, And in fact, many supporters, people who were very close to him, Amini, who was initially, he was the minister of finance. Later on, he is the one who actually negotiated the post-coup nuclear deal with American and British oil companies. He's the one who went to the Shah and said, don't put Mossadegh in prison. Don't put him on trial because he will <laughs> be... Uh, it will become a major problem for the. He didn't, you know. So the dictatorship and the repression, and the the absence of free expression, continued to kind of deepen the delegitimization of the Shah and the Pahlavi regime. Even though in certain areas the regime was successful with respect to expansion of education, even when the women were given the right to vote, we had no democratic elections, there was no free election, but symbolically it was important. Even the land reform, maybe the leftists and the liberals were opposed to uh, certain parts of the land reform, but nevertheless the land reform was a progressive program and they should have supported that. There is no question that we made mistakes. The liberals and the leftists made mistakes and at the end, because it was absolutely unimaginable that Iran can become a theocracy, both the left and the liberals, while they had their own differences. They perceived the religious leaders as instrumental in opposing the Shah and not a substitute. Yes. And, and I'm one of them, except that and Khomeini was the ultimate Machiavellian deceiver. And, you know, in Tariyeh, which is ends justify the means, is very much part of Shiism. I interviewed Khomeini in late December 1978. I was writing an article for Inquiry magazine in San Francisco, and I introduced myself to him. I said, I'm a teacher in California. He immediately interrupted me and said, I'm also a Talabe, which means religious a student. Hmm. I'm also a Talabe, and nothing I want more than returning to Rome and resuming my Talabegi or teaching profession. It was music to my ear. 
They say, wow, this man who is the leader of the revolution is not interested in power. I was not the only one who had this impression, and we had read absolutely nothing by him. The first time I read Khomeini's Kashfur Asrar, which was the title of his critique of sociocultural uh, modernity, uh, uh, when I read that, I felt so ashamed that I had supported this man without having known anything about his ideas. So it's really, a, it was a complicated you know, story, and you know, what happened which shocked everyone, and it will continue to be the, a, a historical puzzle for many Iranians. Again, it's almost uh, impossible to do a, a comprehensive uh, history, a historical study of this in one conversation, but it's rare that I have the opportunity to speak to someone like this who was there in the moment, in the footage, you're standing there. Uh, if you talk about <laughs> defining moments, the coup in 53 is certainly one, but the hostage crisis in 79 is also a defining moment. It would be fair to say that the storming of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 79 and the ensuing hostage crisis is the most defining moment in the events that have brought both nations to this uh, point of no return, an event which led to your resignation and subsequent defection as someone who had direct insight into what transpired in those tumultuous days. You must have some vivid memories of that period. Absolutely, absolutely. I would, you know, I had absolutely no interest in practical politics. I was a human rights activist, and the idea of getting involved in politics was completely, I couldn't even imagine it. And I loved teaching. But I was on sabbatical leave, in, living in, in Washington, doing some research, and when the hostage taking happened. Then I joined a number of American friends who had helped us during the, the uh, Shah's regime, Ramsey Clark, Richard Falk, and the young, many of these people. So these people decided to find a, a way of mediating the hostage crisis through the UN, and I joined them. And we finally came up with the idea, and Walton agreed with it in the United Nations, Foreign Ministry agreed with it, some people in France got involved. At this time, Otsada asked me to represent Iran at the United Nations, and I said I will not accept the position unless I directly hear from Ayatollah Khomeini that he would support the mediation of the UN. So I went to Iran on December 10, 1979. And I, three days later, I met with Khomeini, with Qobzadeh, Ayatollah Montazari, and a couple of other people, and I explained to him what the mediation of the UN would be, and he said, if they condemn the United I said, no, this is a diplomatic mission, and they will issue a statement which, which will be critical of American policies in Iran, but it will not have any legal implication. He said, fine. He un unambiguously accepted that mediation. So I came to New York and finally the commission was formed. They went to Iran. They were supposed to be Iran in five days to release the hostages. They were kept in Iran for 17 days. They were insulted and they were really treated very badly and returned to New York empty-handed. And I resigned the next day. Well, you resign, but then you still stay in Iran. Because I went back to Iran. I, because at that time, I had already, I had to relinquish my citizenship in order to accept a job. So the idea of resigning and staying here, still I was hoping that the fact that many people were still active, I still did not believe 
that the progressive forces of the revolution were defeated. I, I was still hopeful. And I said, I have to go home and join them. And I did. But it didn't work out. <laughs> well, tell me about the part, uh, Professor Fahang, uh, of where it doesn't work out for you. And then this fateful journey or escape from Iran. Um, uh, what was the last straw that convinced you to flee the country? Did you have any warning that they were coming for you? Oh, yeah. But first, I was in hiding for three months before leaving. When I was in Iran, I was kind of foreign policy advisor to President Banisat. But President Banisat had no power at all. There is an expression in Persian. They said, somebody said, what do you do? They said, I work for my uncle. They said, what does your uncle do? He said, my uncle is unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Banisat. When I said foreign policy advisor to Banisat, as if Banisat had any power. So Banisat actually challenged Khomeini and, uh, and all the people who were associated with him when he left the country, when he fled the country, he was going to be arrested. When he fled the country, the rest of us went underground. So I lived underground and then ended up, I used my, uh, I, was, I teach, taught in California, I had something like $15,000 accumulated in my retirement fund. I used $5,000 of my retirement fund in California to pay the smuggler to take me out of the country. <laughs> well, you're, you laugh, but this, this, your escape sounds, it sounds like a movie. <laughs> so uh, it is really, when you look back, I mean, <laughs> these, are the, uh, the, these are really uh, surreal stories in one's life. You end up walking for hours to cross a border. You, you right. sequester yourself in Turkey with no passport. If you I can, was not the only one. I know. Not the only of course. There were many, many, hundreds of Iranians doing. People like Asghar Sejabadi, a leading thinker and writer in Iran. Karim Lahiji, a leading uh, human rights activist. I was really among the people who were well-known people. I was, had spent most of my time, 20 years before the revolution in the United States. What I did was very ordinary for literally thousands of Iranians. But can can you just if you if take a moment, and if you can, um, just to recap, you're this this man at this point who has profoundly cared about Iranian society since the time you were arrested carrying the Mossadegh's defense papers in your in your suitcase as a teenager. You've come, you've studied in the United States, you've returned to Iran, you've had these aspirations with this revolution. You're now forced to escape and on this sort of harrowing uh, attempt to get out of the country and find yourself in Turkey with no passport. Can you take me back to the emotions you were feeling at that time? Were you terrified? You know, when you are involved in this, you, you, it, the immediacy takes over your sensibilities and your thinking. It's very hard to, if you, first of all, because we ran into some problem, Maku is the last town in northern part of Iran. From there, uh, twice, well, it's really a funny story. The first the car I was in, the first was, it was broken. So we had to sit in the gas station, and these two smugglers had to call somebody else. So anyway, by the time we got in, one of them spoke, but two people, the person who was with me at the very end, he could speak uh, Kurdish and some Persian and even a few English words. And I didn't speak Kurdish at all. So we could hardly communicate. But the first thing I told, because we, I had to, we had to walk for almost five hours in mountainous area 
and I tried to, I even wrote it down. He had pencil and paper. I thought he might not understand me. I wrote it down. I said, next time you want to bring someone out like this, please ask him to wear comfortable shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Because walking, walking, by the time I got out of the mountain, my feet were bleeding. And then when we got to the border, this is the story that I'd never forget. When we got to the border, he started to make donkey sound. Donkey sound. And then we waited, we waited until the donkey sound from the, came from the other side. Ah. This was the way the, the smuggler from on the Iranian side, the, uh, the uh, Iranian side was communicating with the one on the Turkish side. Wow. The only way they knew exactly where they were was through the donkey sound which was really a discovery for me. And then at the same time, for about 100 meters, I could not walk between the Iranian and the Turkish border because there was this flash just going round very quickly. But if you crawled on the ground, then you missed the flash. So they taught me to to be very quietly... Uh, this is this was three in the morning, three in the morning. I I crawled between for about a hundred meters between uh, Iran and Turkey. I crawled and finally on the other side, the smuggler when he saw me, I couldn't walk anymore because my feet were really bleeding. I sat there and he went back to his house and came back with with a horse, mm-hmm. and they were extremely nice to me. I was there for a week before they managed to get my passport, take it to Istanbul, and stamp it as, as if I had entered in Istanbul. <laughs> and then after that, from Arzirum, I took they took me to Arzirum, which is the city in Turkey, took the train all the way to Germany. It was, it, it was quite a story, <laughs> but what you feel and think, it's really at the time when you're going through these things, it's so unbelievable, it's so unimaginable, that it's just survival and becomes the real motive and nothing else interferes in what you need to do to survive. So, Professor Varhang, when you, when you finally returned to the United States, the country was still reeling with the animosity towards Iranians in the aftermath of the hostage crisis. I was the little kid in Canada, but I remember it well. What was your experience as an Iranian and as someone who had been a very senior revolutionary diplomat not too long ago, when you're back in the U.S. in the early 80s? I was very angry, and I was very angry because by that time, so many of my friends had been executed in Iran. And if I had been arrested, I would not have been talking to you now. So with that, I was deeply hurt about... It was shocking that what had happened to many friends who were arrested, to people who were hiding, and I was lucky not to be... Uh, you know, arrested. So I had an extremely negative view of the Iranian regime and what I wrote, I wrote some op-ed pieces and I also put on a, uh, a McNeil-Layer show on PBS. And I never forget there, I described, I said, you know, the leaders of Iran, the expression I used, but they're criminally insane. And I was very much influenced by what they had done to so many Iranians and some very close friends 
some students, people, graduate students, or people who had graduated from UCLA and Stanford, and we were all active as human rights activists, in fact, many of these. I, you know, Lajavardi, who would have executed me, Lajavardi was the chief operator of the Iranian intelligence, and he's the one. He was in jail under the Shah for 10 years in California and Oregon and Washington State on the West Coast. I was involved in human um, Amnesty International. I gave more than 15 lectures on his behalf in order to uh, defend him because Amnesty International had chosen Astudla Lajavardi as an exemplary prisoner who had been tortured. And then he is the one who actually issued the execution of many of the people who had worked for him. And when I remember one person who said, listen, when you were in prison, I defended you and in various ways, Amnesty International had chosen you. His response was, you didn't do it for me, you did it for God. When, when you think of that time now, 40 years hence, are you still angry? No, I'm still puzzled because in, in, in Iran, I, we could not expect what happened is, you know, we will, for the rest of our lives, we are going to be, you know, puzzled. You know, if anger in the sense of wanting, feeling violent, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I still think the best thing that can happen to Iran is a peaceful transformation, no matter how long it will take, because any kind of violent confrontation could only result in more violence, in more death, and eventual another dictatorship. So, no, I, I, I think we, what, what I think today, but largely uncritical of the left and the liberals, because many of them in Iran, before the revolution and during the first year when there was possibilities of freedom and cooperation, they had a very closed, one-dimensional ideological perspective, particularly the leftists and particularly the two de Paris. And they did not cooperate at all. In other words, many of these peoples they were seeing the clerics as instruments of their own political project, not knowing that the clerics and Khomeini, who was a masterful Machiavellian character, he was using the competition. He used the today the Communist Party to get rid of the Social Democrats and the Liberals and the Liberal Nationalists. And then once he was done, yes. then he destroyed the Communist Party. Consolidated the power, yeah. Now, the, when, we, when I think about the past, it is largely a criti criticism of our own behavior. And the purpose is to say, what do we learn from that experience that could be conveyed to the new generation so that if they struggle for democracy, inevitably it is going on, that they are not going to, say, to take the same mistakes and fragmentation. Because we could... Iranians could easily be united when they said what they don't want. Right. But the moment you say, what do you want? <laughs> fragmentation. What fragmentation. I, I want to ask you about what we've learned, but just one more personal question about your own feelings about that time. Do you feel, um, do you, feel you were, I mean, look, a lot of people, uh, the, many of the names you've mentioned, and from all different political streams, thought, believed in this revolution, uh, and and were sadly heartbroken when it didn't happen or lost their lives. Uh, do you feel you were naive? Uh, 
or do you forgive yourself for trying? We were uninformed. We were, we were not naive in the sense of not knowing about politics and history. We were uninformed about the activities of religious uh, fanatics, that is the fundamentalists. The second thing was that the people who popularized the religious ideology. I know Ali Shariati very closely. Three times I went to Iran, I had, I had absolutely no, no religious affiliation at all. But we all supported them because they were organizing, mm. they were politicizing a new sector of the society. Young men and women who came from traditional Bazari background, and then they were in the universities. For example, in the United States, during the 1960s, I was very much active in the United States, and the student, and we didn't have any religious group at all. And then suddenly, from 1970 on, from about 10 years, we had a growing number of Iranian students who are religious, they get together, they, they pray, and they hijab, and all that. It, the, and then many people, and they were not particularly political. You know, Yazdi, Ali, Ibrahim Yazdi was mostly a very active member of this group. No, we didn't, we were, we were uninformed. We should have studied, we were uninformed, and also the absolute worst thing, we were naive, all of us, in the sense that if Iran is going to have a civil society, if Iran ever is going to have a, a kind of movement toward democratic order, the left, the liberal, and the religious uh, uh, people like Bazargan and Bani Sadov, they have to create a, a coalition. Otherwise, the, the right-wing people, whether they're religious or whether they're traditional ruling class, they could definitely defeat them. Yes, in that sense, we were naive. Yes, we suffered from that. There's something else, too, and that is that in the years leading to the Iranian Revolution, and perhaps during the first decade or so after it, anti-imperialism was the center stone of left-leaning political discourse in Iran. Uh, and this theme is also the focus of your first book, U.S. Imperialism, Absolutely. the Spanish-American War to the Iranian Revolution. Uh, you published that in, in 81. Would it be fair to say that the concept of anti-imperialism is no longer relevant for younger generations today? Are we living in a post-imperialist world somehow? Or is it just the fact that people living under a repressive theocracy in Iran, for example, don't really care much about the war of ideologies? Today, you're very right. No question about it. That system is changed. But it wasn't only in Iran. You know, I did all my undergraduate and graduate work in the United States during the 1960s. And you could imagine, you know, the opposition to the war in Vietnam had a profound impact on me. You know, that, and everything I read about it, I, I knew that the United States was moving in the wrong direction. So we were influenced not only by Iranian events, but by international events, but particularly at least those of us in the United States by the anti-war movement. 
in the final years before the 1979 revolution and for reasons that are still a matter of contention and that we discussed in the last hour, most of the opposition to the former regime, to the, to the Shah, especially in the far smaller Iranian diaspora at the time, were galvanized behind Ayatollah Khomeini. As you say, we're good at uh, getting together when we, we know what we oppose. From your personal perspective, why is it that since then, the Iranian diaspora has been engulfed by infighting, feuds, and, and, and hyper-partisanship. It's getting better. It's getting better. Because I would say, in the past, the division or the fragmentation was very much ideological. Today, I think the division fragmentation is behavioral. It means when you read the writings of Iranians, when they give speeches and not, it's unbelievable that the democratic discourse has become extremely popular. Human rights discourse, very popular. But when it comes to action, when it comes to behavior, as if, you know, the, what goes on in our mind, what goes on in our cognitive capabilities, doesn't seem to have a direct impact on, on behavior. That problem, and I would say that in any country, any society, we have had 3,000 years of whatever of dictatorship, and in the family, in the neighborhood, and in the state. So these autocratic tendencies, this, this one-dimensional thinking and all that is not only in, in politics. So I would say over the past 20, 25 years, the change has been significant abroad and even inside the country there seems to be a significant change there is no question that it is in their thinking in their writing but to what extent it could be translated into democratic behavior in the sense of you know democracy has the preconception it means human animals whether they live past, present, wherever, they have conflicts. They have conflicts of interest, they have conflicts of values, they have conflicts of beliefs, and they have clash of egos. Mm. So what do we do in the context of this given situation? More or less, of course, depending on the society. We haven't sufficiently internalized that. Still, Iranians who think about democracy and human rights and all that, as if back of their mind they think there is the right way. There is the right way. In, in, in the universe of politics, you know, pluralism is an inevitability. We haven't internalized that yet. But I think we have, this revolution in Iran has given us two fantastic unintended gifts. One is that religion, when it becomes the ideology of the state, it produces fascism. Hmm. And yet a, a religious individual could respect freedom and pluralism. You know, a religious person, and there are many of them. You know, my parents were religious. They were very tolerant, no question about that. It, we have learned that give religion, when we talk about individual behave, behavior based on religious motivation, is not at all the same thing when religion becomes the Theocracy, ideology of the right. state. And the second is human rights. That is acceptance of pluralism. Both of them have really expanded and have had fantastic, very uh, uh, hopeful impact on Iranian consciousness and thinking and writing and so forth. And 
this is the way that we have to to go on. I'm personally optimistic. Well, you are optimistic. I mean, you've described the theocracy in Iran as a blip, a mere blip in history that will soon pass. Do, do you really believe that? Oh, absolutely. All totalitarian states, because first of all, what they do, the moment they come to power, it is the survival of the regime that is the motivation. For example, Khomeini, before he died, he said, if necessary, destroy the mosque. Don't worry, any, wow. anything goes, so long as we remain in. In other words, power takes over. In other words, the what thing that they're supposed to be existing for, they're willing to destroy just to retain power. Absolutely. But it very much all totalitarian, like Stalinism, like Maoism. They come, they said they have the absolute truth, and there is no alternative. In other words, these people do not see political rivals. Anyone who disagrees with them is an enemy. And even the person who was their friend until yesterday, and today, as many of them are in jail or busted, they become enemies. So this is a totalitarian thinking. It could have religious vocabulary or Marxist vocabulary or fascistic vocabulary. And they are faced with a variety of problems and contradictions, and economically, politically, socially. It's very hard to imagine how and when this regime will collapse. We don't know. It may well be that with the passage of time, the next generation of leaders, it's four years have passed, maybe if they stay in power for another 20 years, we will have their children who will not feel and think the same way as their parents do. As many communists in Russia ended up making fun of communism, <laughs> the second generation. So it's, we don't know how, but I, I cannot imagine the Iranian society can be ruled by people who say, listening to music is sinful. Listening to the woman singer is sinful. You know, this is unbelievable that a man and a woman you know, have to follow government. There's this interference. I always thought that if there is Iranian or narcissistic, if anything, <laughs> the idea of interfering in the private sphere of life and telling people, what to eat, what not to eat, pray and fast and not listen to music, not to work. This, the society is very much dissatisfied and resentful of them, particularly, particularly young people. When we, Persian is the fourth most widely used language on the Internet. And in, inside the country and outside the country, it's very clear that the regime's uh, behavior and policies have created massive resentment. They still have a popular base, no question, but they still have a social base. And the social base has become beneficiary of the regime. For example, the 120,000 Revolutionary Guard. Revolutionary Guard is actually a political party. To me, it's a fascist political party. And all the people associated with them benefit from the regime. So the, the Iranian regime has created a new governing class. But that is the, the, in terms of distribution of wealth and income between this governing class and the public at large is deeper than it was under the Shah, based on the statistics and evidence you read in the Iranian newspapers. So I cannot imagine this regime being able to uh, continue indefinitely. When and how, we don't know. History doesn't tell us how we predict the future. 
you have been incredibly gracious to give us so much time. I have two short questions uh, to end off with, one academic, one personal. Um, if we again zoom out and, and take the undertone of this conversation or the sort of pretext for the conversation and in fact what we ended up talking about between the relationship between the United States and Iran and uh, that has colored so much of your scholarship and your life. Um, it, it's still interesting, on the face of it, why this enmity continues to exist. Uh, Iran is not the only anti-democratic country in the world. Uh, even this fascination and this ongoing uh, focus on the hostage crisis, there have been many other, more deadly incidents involving U.S. embassies or diplomats in other parts of the world, attacks that theoretically could have uh, had much more potency in triggering hostility between the U.S. and some other state. The fact that 15 of the 19 September 11th hijackers were Saudi citizens, for example. Why is it that the Iran hostage crisis, why is it that this enmity between the U.S. and Iran continues to sustain? You see, the, the Iranian revolution is the first anti-modern revolution. I mean, genuine revolution by the people who committed it. And by modern, I mean socioculturally, not technologically or scientifically. Iran is very much interested in getting the best weapons and the best communication equipment and all that. But socioculturally, that is, when you read Khomeini's books, he says the short skirt of a woman is more dangerous than the armies of the West. And the many, many of these you know, statements. So they had two objectives from the very beginning re-islamization of the society that is completely from the elementary school to the university and they have been doing it the second part of this again coming from the religious system what has happened in reality is a different story is that they had a mission all revolutions you know the united states france great britain to China, Russia, all these modern revolutions have had a missionary zeal. Iran also had one, except that it was focused on the Middle East. They want to be the leader of the revolution. Based on this, this opposition to social cultural modernity, which had influenced significant sectors of Iranian middle class, particularly the educated sectors of the country, on the one hand, and this Shiism, that Islam had been betrayed by Sunnis and Shiism, wanted to revive Islam. These two ideas motivated the pre-revolutionary activities of religious you know, thinkers, and when they came to power, they were very much influenced by these ideas in the formulation of policy and tactics. We, on that basis, they chose their enemies. The United States, as you said it earlier, symbolizes social culture modernity because it also is the most important economic and military power it has also had close ties and the coup 53 coup with iran therefore the united states became the symbol the representative of this modernity or well, europe too but europe is less influential at this in terms of power and here that the, what i the point i want to make they had enemies the enemy the United States was based on this. The second one was Israel. Why Israel? Because in order to export the revolution, in order to present themselves as the leader of the revolution, they, want, they wanted to oppose the, the regimes in the Middle East and yet appeal to uh, 
to the general public. Let me say that the enmity between Tehran and Tel Aviv calls to mind Hegel's famous proposition. The real is absurd and the absurd is rational. For Iran and Israel have no conflict of interest, but right-wing forces led by Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu find their war of words useful to their respective political and ideological ambitions. Ayatollah Khamenei referred to Israel as cancer, but that has to be destroyed. In Iran, as well as many other countries across the world, people are critical of Israeli policy toward Palestinians. But questioning the existence and the legitimacy of this state has absolutely nothing to do with Iranian public opinion. It's really used as propaganda in Iran. And then what was Netanyahu's response to all this? He said it's 1938 and Iran is Germany. And the right-wing people in Israel have benefited tremendously from Iranian propaganda, which goes on 24 hours a day in Arabic, in Hebrew, in Persian, in English, in French, constantly. And let me tell you that they also, they challenge Iran and Israel were the only countries that supported U.S. invasion of Iraq. The only two two states in the region. And when the ISIS developed, Iran and Israel worked together against the ISIS because definitely Israelis didn't want the ISIS to take over Syria. Iran also put it up for its own reason, didn't want that. So there are many, many examples that they, these two, you know, they're Khamenei and, and Netanyahu are intimate enemies. But you've explained why the enmity exists from an Iranian perspective or, or the perspective of the current regime in Iran towards the United States. What about the flip side? Why meet with the leader of North Korea, but not Iran? I'm not saying we should appease the the regime. I'm saying, what is the intention? I mean, I, I have my own theories about this. I want to hear yours. What is the intention of the American administration to continually retain Iran as the chief enemy? Israel. If, if I think Israel, and I would say even if Clinton had won the election, it would not have been as bad. But I would say the key to de-escalation of U.S.-Iran relation is to de-escalation of enmity between Israel. And because Israel, when Iran threatens the existence of Israel, you know, we are talking about Jewish people who were oppressed for 2,000 years, who were expelled from every European country. They suffered the Holocaust. And somebody comes in and says, I want to destroy you, your cancer. You have to. It has an impact, no question about it. It has an impact, and this impact serves the most right-wing people in Israel. So they're constantly exaggerating Iran. Iran doesn't have real power to threaten Israel. Militarily, absolutely not. Even propaganda is used. What they do, they want to, because Israel, most Arab people think, and correctly, that the Arab states have kind of marginalized, or have become indifferent to the Palestinian issue, Palestinian rights. So Iran wants to say, and yet Iran, is, Iran and Netanyahu and Khamenei are both opposed to independent Palestinian states. Uh, Yasser Arafat 
used to be regarded as a hero in Iran. When he met with Esak Rabin in Washington, he became a traitor the next day. Mahmoud Abbas is regarded as a foreign agent, as a CIA agent in Iran, and Netanyahu never misses an opportunity to discredit him. So there is, they want this confrontation. Iran wants this confrontation. To, the benefit from the right-wing Israelis is fantastic. They say the real threat to the security of the region is Iran. And they want to marginalize the Palestinian issue, and they have succeeded. And but if Iran is the real threat to the region, Saudi Arabia, Arab Gulf states, they are closer to Israel than to Iran. Iran and Netanyahu were both opposed to the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. They were both opposed to peace treaty between Israel and Jordan. It's fascinating. When I say it's, you know, the real is absurd yes. and the absurd is rational, that Iran and Israel have absolutely no conflict of interest. And yet this animosity is instrumentally useful for each side, for the right wing people on each side to pursue their ideological or their political, domestic and regional issues. Whether they succeed, where they get and the, the, what the results will be, that's a different issue. But so long as this goes on, it's very hard for me to see normalization of U.S.-Iran relations unless Iran puts an end to this total rejection of Israeli state and giving Israel the, uh, the tool the, to refer to Iran as an existential threat to itself. A final question, and I said it would be a personal one. It's, uh, it's been almost 70 years since you were arrested as a teenager, a young teen, uh, carrying those articles of, of defense for former Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1954. If you were uh, in that interim time, in those decades, you've experienced a lot, you've built a lot, you've taught a lot, um, uh, you've thought a lot, and you've written. Uh, if you had the chance to offer advice to that teenage Mansur Fadhang, about something about life that he didn't know at that time that you've learned over the last 70 years. What would you say to him? But I would tell him, as we have talked about it, first of all, uh, we can understand life, uh, the decisions we make, and what we do uh, backward. But we have to live forward. Uh-huh. So if I go back, those circumstances, those situations are not going to be repeated. But what we, at the time we did not know was that Iran is a pluralistic society and it is absolutely essential to relate to your critics and opponents as rivals and work toward compromise and toward coalition building. I'll do this right now. What I read often of the articles and lectures, everything that I give to, to the addressing Iranians, I do it very regularly, almost every week, a couple of times a week, is really the focus is on we are a diverse society and we have to listen to each other and we have to know that without coalition between the left, the social democrats and the liberals, we will not have a chance to create and open a society in Iran. That's, you know, the, the, that's fundamentally the language I use to, whether they're old or new. And that's the reality. I, I see that as a factual statement. It's been an utter pleasure getting to talk to you. 
I am so grateful for the time you've given us. Thank you so much, my. <laughs> I hope it was useful. It was more than useful. It was a, an education <laughs> and a revelation, and uh, and and just fun to to hear some of your stories as well. Uh, thank you for doing this. I hope you stay safe, uh, and I hope we get to talk again before too long. Thank you so much. Chodafes. Bye bye. That's Mansur Farhang, the professor, the author, an advisory board member of Middle East Watch, a branch of Human Rights Watch. He joined us from Vermont today. decompress from that uh, that interview there is so much there uh, what um, as I said what an education talking to him uh, Mansur Farhang so many thoughts racing through my mind uh, the gang has assembled Captain Reza hello sir hello um, the fabulous Keon you've been listening in the whole time as well Groovy Shia hello and uh, this week, our special guest returning to the Rook Roundtable, the writer Nilufar Qurashi. She was born in Tehran, came here as a kid, uh, that is to Canada. She is currently completing her MA in Communications and Media at York University, a lover of metaphysics, cosmos, and humanity, and a blogger for Titra magazine. She's also a full-time mom, I happen to know, of a super cute toddler uh, <laughs> who I have yet to meet, but uh, based on your your photos with him, he's uh, he's quite a bundle. Uh, Nilu, good to have you back here. Thank you so much, Ian. Uh, let me start with you. You've been sitting, uh, listening as I've been doing that uh, interview with uh, um, Professor Mansur Farhang, uh, your visceral impressions. I feel like I could not get enough of all that information that he was sharing in so little time. I mean, so much content, so much history, so much, um, so much of what my generation uh, is thirsty for. All these questions that are unanswered. Why did the revolution happen? Why are we here? Um, if Iran was so great, um, why did they overthrow the regime? And, you know, here he is firsthand sharing his experience, as you said, as a frontliner. We have an expression in uh, Persian, we say, where you lose on both ends in a way, where, you know, he came out and he pushed forward the revolution pro Khomeini and then Naturally, he fled the country like many did. He was chased out of the country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He would have died if he stayed. Yeah, Absolutely, right? Uh, yeah, just like you, I also have to kind of decompress, but just uh, I'm blown away. As I was doing it, there were so many things that he was saying that in my mind I was kind of going, ding, 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 there's going to be people who don't like that he said that. And then he would bring it around. It was an incredibly, for a man who's been through as much as he has and who would have the right as an octogenarian to say whatever he wants, you know, he, he gets the, you know, he can pronounce it. He was incredibly nuanced. Uh, there was there yeah. was such remarkable uh, balance taken in, in terms of what, what he kept saying that was it was surprising me with each answer captain reza yeah i couldn't agree with you more and also nilfar it's uh, he's he's an incredibly balanced and and logical and um um well-informed educated scholar that i and i i just could not believe this 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 man is 85 years old 
Yeah. He's, he's 84. Don't, 84. Don't make him 85. Oh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize <laughs> to, me, to Professor Farhang. Already I added one year to six. But uh, he's extremely sharp and, 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 and incredible. And his story, when he was talking about leaving Iran uh, uh, on a donkey through, through uh, by the help of a smuggler, it, it just resonated so much with me. Uh, not only because this is a story that a lot of Iranians share, but it spoke to his character more so than anything else. The moment where uh, you were you brought that up and then he said but a lot of people have been through that a lot of people and to me that was the that was the modesty that really was intriguing and to be perfectly honest like at that moment like there was a it it was it was almost a revelation for me i was like you see that's the difference between a true educated intelligent unbiased and smart person as opposed to somebody who's just who just regurgitates like big words, tries to read books to impress people, gets a diploma, puts puts it on the wall, and does it, and it's in fact empty. And uh, is our culture, and it's not only our culture, but this this world in general is filled with people like that. Uh, there was no part of him that felt defensive when I uh, basically, oh. in, in as polite a way as I could, said, you know, do you do you know that you were wrong with yeah. the working at the time of the revolution? Uh, I, I say, were you naive? But earlier in the interview, he says, um, if I remember this, he said, I we were uninformed. Ooh, and then yeah. later, just a few months ago, at the yeah. end here, he was saying, uh, we no, I, I was not, we were naive. And, and, and um, uh, well, let me, I'll, I'll speak to that in a moment in terms of what I found sort of heartbreaking. Let me just hear from you, uh, the fabulous Keon. What? I think you guys all covered it. I mean, he has such a balanced, modest, and nonpartisan view of Iranian politics, and that's really refreshing. You know, we've, we all have our opinions based on what happened with the revolution and everything, but he, he looks at it in a logical way. Um, and the fact that he played a role during the time of legendary politician Mossadegh in the 50s, that, I was like, <laughs> wow, I've read about this stuff, and this guy has experienced that really blew me away and um, his story of getting smuggled out of Iran reaching the uh, Turkish border on a mountain and um, the smugglers making donkey sounds mm-hmm. waiting for hours for the the Turkish side to give the signal to pass through that that just insane you could write books about this man's life and and Reza you said it a lot of Iranians have experienced this smuggling out of a country to save their lives my parents included not in Iran mind you um, they were in Kuwait during the Kuwait Iraq war and they had to they have this crazy story of escaping and smuggling other families Pakistani Kuwaitis um, outside of the country at the time and uh, so it's it's crazy that yeah. we all share this and then he says uh, I keep I keep basically wanting to suggest he's some kind of hero and not only does he, yeah. does he say no uh, there were a lot of people who went through yeah. this he he makes a joke of it and says I told the guy wear comfortable you know tell people to wear comfortable shoes next <laughs> yeah. time when they're getting uh, yeah. they're escaping the country <laughs> Shia um, yes you all covered all things uh, the only thing I want to mention, I feel hope in his voice. I hear hope in his voice. And this question ca- came to my mind that why sometimes I feel hopeless and these people that they, they, they've been through, a l- uh, you know, so a lot of disaster events in their life. They are hopeful, and why I am hopeless yeah. sometimes, you know. And what do you think the answer is? Uh, I don't, <laughs> you know. I, I I believe that um, 
universe is um, uh, unfolding every moment, but uh, I don't know. Can I make a suggestion? Yes. I think when you're 84 years old uh -huh. and you've lived through the the coup that re removed Mossadegh, <laughs> then you've lived through the the uh, revolution that removed the Shah. Uh, he has seen seismic change, yeah. mm -hmm. so maybe he believes that it can it can happen again. I mean, uh, in micro ways and in macro in 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 historic ways, mm -hmm. might that be part of what it is? Exactly. I, I think yes. He yes. That, um, yeah. That's the suggestion that I have to think about it, yeah. And he says it. He says that this regime right now is just a blip in history. And yeah. that's really interesting to yeah. think about his pers based on his perspective. He's seen it all, like you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in terms of the, the overriding emotions, I'm trying to tap into the emotion that I felt talking to him. And, um, I, I mean, some of it was, as I keep saying, educational. But, uh, but that almost does him a disservice because it wasn't an entirely academic chat it was um to be honest i had a it was heartbreaking at times mm -hmm. and again it becomes so commonplace for us oh yeah people had to escape oh yeah there were people who were executed you know but the part where he says most of my friends yep. that remained were executed um the, this this moment in history where this this flight of intellectuals from iran or, or they stay and they get killed um, this realization that amongst those who were naive, stupid, wrong, whatever you want to call them, who believed that the revolution was going to turn into some sort of popular liberal democracy, and as it is slowly being co-opted by the, for the Islamic formalists and, and Khomeini and others, uh, the, the heartbreak in that, um, to hear him talking about that, to talk about the fact that he defended the mm -hmm. same for years. You know, he went around the United States doing lectures, defending the same guy who would end up mm -hmm. ordering the executions of some of his friends and, and him himself if he had stayed. Uh, that was... I, I don't. I guess I don't want that to ever get tired. In yeah. a way, you know, yeah. as much as that's yes. part of our collective yes. history. Uh, yeah. For anybody who's come from Iran, the story of survival. Sorry, um, with all the uprise that's happening in Iran and the sanctions and the difficulties. And, and I'm so not a political person, as you guys know. Uh, but again, as someone who was raised in the West, and I've only been told stories by other people. Um, what's the right thing for this regime to go, for them to stay? Who's going to replace them? Who decides? Um, uh, do we want war? No. Um, I mean, Professor Farhang touched upon something extremely important, I think, um, that we all really need to sit in quiet and reflect upon that war in Iran will not be beneficial for anyone at this point. And yet there are people who, who advocate it. There are people who think that that is the answer. And, and uh, I guess what I, I was going to say, that's okay. I, what I, what I want to say is um, uh, there are a lot of different opinions. Um, what I think is we should hear from people. You don't have to agree yeah. with everything that Mansur Farhang has to say, but hearing from people like this, hearing their stories, hearing their perspectives, adding to that conversation. I think, Reza, you alluded to this earlier. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a disposition of, of a lot of Iranians, I don't know if this is in our DNA or not, to just take a position yep. and hunker down in yep. it uh, as if you're in the barracks and that's yep. my position mm -hmm. and you're not going to change me. And, yeah. um, and, and you know, if somebody's lost to... Uh, 
a, a sibling in, in a war mm-hmm. or through an execution or, 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 or gone through an incredibly difficult time or whatever it is, it's understandable that these, these opinions are as pointed as they are. But hearing from people like this this man, um, almost like I felt like uh, sitting on his knee. You know, tell me yeah. about tell me the story. I mean, yeah. I mean, he, he's telling this story. He's half, I'm asking. I'm half broadcaster guy asking him. Uh, you, you know, questions about do you think Trump's going to attack Iran? Wag the dog, and I'm half kid just going. Just tell me. Tell me what. what tell you know. me what. Tell me what you know. Yeah. 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 And I think one of the uh, notable uh, characteristics uh, amongst not only Iranians I would say but people with strong opinion is the fact that they want to win an argument mm. they are not looking for a solution mm-hmm. I take a position and I'm gonna just try to grasp at every piece of information and try to prove you wrong and say that I'm right mm-hmm. whereas like when you listen to Professor Farhang it's it, it was as if you're listening to a history book being narrated through a personal point of view and with it, tragic tales of um, uh, uh, of of personal uh, friends being executed and dying and whatnot, and then it, it, it th- coming through a, a person coming from a person that is that's seen it all, been through it all, and uh, and and has probably a better understanding than any of us for sure, better than me. When you when we talk about war and 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 yes, a lot of people believe in that. It, it reminds me of one of the points that he made that he's like, no matter what, I'm pro. Uh, uh, transition of power in Iran and I think that's the only way Mm -hmm. to to deal with this I think a lot of pro-war advocates would probably say and it's it's, I'm not I'm not pro-war or pro anything but uh, I think one of the questions would be how transition of peaceful transition mm-hmm. of power to whom mm-hmm. are we even are we kidding ourselves like uh, Reza you said at one point that uh, you you think that Professor Fahang probably has a better understanding of Iranian history than you are you sure about that because <laughs> that, that seemed like a very uh, you're really putting yourself out there by oh. suggesting that <laughs> for he someone may, that's non-political too I'm not, I'm not he may to, have a better understanding I'm you said I'm not trying to brag uh, <laughs> but he probably has a better understanding than I love that than you know than a, than a he may understand Things better than me, but what I'm gonna say is, uh, right. yeah, yeah. he probably knows better than a guy uh, who hasn't read one book. Uh, and, and and again, uh, there are people I am sure who listen to that and don't agree with him. You're welcome to give us your opinions at uh, info at rookmedia.com or post on our. You know, the fact that we're we all think he's as great as he is might be might not sit well with with some folks. Uh, but I will say this: there's something that is not debatable, and that is that his. Acuity, his mental oh, acuity. Man. I mean, despite the fact that, as uh, I mean, Reza, you, you suggested I think he's 186 years old, but no. <laughs> he's only he is only 84. Uh, but I mean, he would say, uh, "I've got three points about that," yeah. and he starts talking. I'm thinking, is he gonna, you know, <laughs> he's he's uh, first of all, he's speaking without. Uh, I mean, he's speaking, as you said, it's almost like reading a book as he mm-hmm. speaks. And then he would come back to every point. Yeah. He's in, it just incredibly sharp, uh, sh- sharper than, I mean, we we tend to, in our current ageist society, suggest that anybody who's, there's a big debate in the United States right now about that whether the guys who are running, who are 10 years younger than Professor Van Hang, mm. are too old. Uh, yeah. And maybe they are, but <laughs> he, he sure proves that you can be in your mid-80s and, and be incredibly sharp. Yeah. That yeah. Was, uh, yeah, that was uh, remarkable. Kian Docht. 
I, you're you're I nodding to, and uh, go ahead. He, he, first, he's refreshing. He was a fresh, uh, refreshing person to listen to. But I have to say, I loved your last question. If you had the chance to oh. offer advice to a teenage man who were over 70 years ago, what would you tell him? And he says, you know, you don't live life in retro. It's, it's easy to live your life in retrospect and say, oh, I would have done this, this, this. But the reality is you live life forward. But his answer, he said, the importance of relating to your critics and opponents. We have to mm. listen to both sides, whether it's the left, whether it's the right. That was such a beautiful answer. And I wish more politicians would do that. <laughs> well, let, let me just uh, segue uh, into another episode of Rook because we it, we haven't, this is the first time we've had the Rook roundtable since, and I said we would talk a little bit more about the Charlize Omarodi episode. Uh, a very different personality with a different personal history. Um, but uh, wow, was it, has it certainly been a popular episode? It was our last episode of Rook on Monday. And um, Shali Zomaradi, of course, the Iranian-American, uh, the, the, the broadcaster, she's the anchor, has been for 12 years now of, of San Diego, um, I think it's San Diego, morning, Fox 5 mornings yeah. in San Diego. Um, but she is a known across our diaspora as the... Uh, uh, the great uh, broadcaster and also the great mm -hmm. dancer who mm -hmm. um, snaps into some Persian moves in the studio from time to time. Um, Neelu, before we, as we were walking into the studio today, you said that um, you you really related to her, uh, which would seem obvious. You're a woman in your 30s. She, you have a kid. Uh, but tell me a bit about more about what how that interview made you I'm assuming you don't know her but she <laughs> felt like somebody that you you would relate to yeah absolutely um Shali is just I mean I've always been following her on Instagram she's a prominent Iranian American she's a woman she's successful um and I feel like as um as young women growing up in the west we all have this you know we all want this role model we all want to see what we're supposed to look like. We all want to see what we're aiming for. We all want to see someone we want to identify with, um, if you will. And and Shali's just uh, she's she's very human. She's very raw. She's um, she's very real. Just like she says in her interview, um, she's a mom. She's a wife. She's a daughter. She's successful. Um, and yet look at everything she's had to overcome. Like I had no idea about this stuff, right? Um, when I was listening to the interview. Being the Iranian kid in Texas at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And being in the made, 80s and 90s. Yeah. yeah. I like, and being made fun of. And I'm like, what? Why would you have been made fun of? You're so beautiful. Look at you. Who made fun of you? How could this have happened? And then I'm, you know, like all these thoughts are racing through my mind. And I'm like. I was made fun of. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I had darker features. And back when I immigrated to Canada, this was like early 90s, right? I mean, not as long ago as Shali. Well, she was born in the U.S., but things have changed a lot, let's yes. just say. Yes. And I was made fun of. I was a minority. I was singled out. And I had the challenge to adapt to the culture and learn about mm -hmm. myself and find, locate myself, firstly. Then kind of stand up to all the oppression and overcome the fear and yeah and, and I mean she's extremely successful and also super educated and and to hear that in Southern Cal I mean this is will come as no surprise to the people in this room or even most of the people, Iranians listening but to hear that even today in Southern California where there's no shortage of Iranians yeah. that someone says to her you should get your kids eyebrows fixed that's what shocked me the most yeah, yeah. yeah that's what shocked me the most you know what Gian you made a good point because I was thinking, but in that region, 
you know, in, in Southern part of California, like how were you outnumbered or how were mm-hmm. you the odd person? I mean, I, I could say I was in Toronto because in Toronto, the Iranian community was like minimal back in the 90s. But uh, I know for sure that shortly after the revolution and even before, like many Iranians were living in the U.S. and in that region. So, you know, and good for her. Good for her. I I really loved that. Um, I loved, I mean, I could go on and on about this. Sorry, guys, you've given me the mic and <laughs> you're not going to get it back. OK, um, but uh, I mean, she sh- she shared so much about herself, even going through therapy and, mm-hmm. you know, how, all the hate, like emails and whatnot that she gets in her role, that can't be easy. Come on. You're getting it from like the Iranians who are, I love because hmm. she always calls these people salty people. Yeah. That's the, that's what she says. She says, you salty people, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to block you because you're being, you're being hatred or, or hateful, I would, I should say. Um, but you're getting that from your own community and then you're getting that from, you know, the Americans, I guess. And where do we stand? You know. I'd like to I'd like to raise a question if I may. Uh, it's it's so interesting because Shadi is uh, Shadi. Shadi, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're off to a good so start. Shod. You're off to a good start, Reza. I yeah. know, but, but she's so shod that I confused her <laughs> name with Shadi, um, which means happiness for those of you who don't <laughs> speak Farsi. Uh, but Shadi is yes, for sure. She's so energetic, happy, and uh, she's got such a strong and positive personality. I'm wondering if that's uh, that has anything to do with, with uh, genetic. Uh, and if it's genetics at all, because yeah, like for real, like because she's been through <laughs> no, a, she lot, a lot of energy. He's differently right. to does, it yeah. than like let's say somebody else who's been through probably the same thing. Well, why would your uh, why would you think that that is? Why would your first thought be that's genetics as opposed because to Zeno someone who's worked at being a positive person or had parents who encouraged her or you know is. I, I feel like it has a lot to do with genes. Like you, um, ha- you have to work for happiness. And she said it, like covering the news is not easy. You see all this horrible stuff happening. So she was saying like, you know, minimal problems that would come up in her daily life. She would just put it on the news for a few minutes and she'd be like, I'm good. Like my life is good. You just, you have to work at your happiness. It's just like everything else. I don't yeah. think it's genetic. I feel like it is because uh, I'm, I'm a, such oh a grumpy person and I... Blaming it on the genetics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It must be the genetics. Yeah, I don't want to uh, work out. I, I, I wanted to actually just, uh, the only question I did actually want to bring up, uh, I'm so glad you led us there, Nilu. Until Captain Reza <laughs> ruined it, <laughs> let us down the path of eugenics, uh, which was odd. Um, uh, the the question I actually had was as a mother as well, and and you guys can all weigh in on this too in terms of your your personal experiences growing up. Or uh, Shai, you're a little different because you are you've been in Iran, and I guess Reza too. You came when you were quite young when, or you're a teenager when you came. But um, but. Uh, I, I shared that part in the interview about how it was very difficult for me because, and I, I, I have to be very careful because I, I don't blame my parents for this. They, they, and they weren't the only people saying this. And there are probably people saying it now. There's a school of assimilationist thought that says, tell, you know, tell your kid, they're, they're not like anybody, you're not like anybody else. What they mean by that is you're just as good as, as everybody else. Don't let somebody say that you're not because you got brown skin or you got a big nose or something like that. But that didn't work for me because I felt 
because it was so obvious to me <laughs> that I wasn't. Even years later, playing in a rock band with with three guys who had roots that go back century, centuries in Canada and white guys, it was obvious to me that I'm different. You know, I go home and I and my family values are different, and I've got a, a whole set of way of operating that's that's different. And, uh, so um, and and Shali talked about that reinforcement that I think in this era of. Uh, you know, I mean, Lady Gaga's message is, okay, little monsters, you could all be unique, be yourself. Uh, it, maybe it's easier to give this message to your kid that you being unique is empowering. That's actually great. But do you think about that, Nilu? I mean, your toddler's uh, pretty young right now. I but, do. But at some point, I uh, do. He, he may realize he doesn't look like yeah. Brad Pitt, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. Of course I do. I mean, we were just talking about this a few days ago at home. Um, there's always this conversation around, like, talk to him in Persian. Of course, our parents, like, you know, Farsi, Afbazanin, you know, no English. This is what my mom used to say all the time, right? Um, and what do you do? <laughs> I'm guilty, actually, because uh, English, for me, even though Persian is my mother tongue, and I'm, like, I love it. I can read Hafiz for you. Uh, I can read and write. I, I love it. Um, but, but for me, because I was raised here and I've been here most of my life I feel more comfortable talking in English mm -hmm. so occasionally I'll be like Ayan like Das Nazan and I'm like okay go sit over there and then my husband will come and be like talk to him in Farsi like don't don't say English stuff but the thing is is I, I tell him at the end of the day say the mean stuff in Farsi that's a yeah, good yeah, message yeah <laughs> The kid will have a great impression. <laughs> if you're telling him to go to the corner, say it in Farsi. Uh, the good stuff in English. That's you want right. a pie? Right. <laughs> it must be difficult. Sorry, no, no, Leela, Leela you go ahead. We cut you off. No, yeah. no, no, no. It's um, it's hard. It's uh, it's actually a, a new challenge for me. And you know what, Gian? Let me say something. I feel like we um, I feel like we blame our parents until we become one. Mm. A lot. And I know this is really cliche. Obviously, this is not like original for me. Uh, but I I will say that um, from the bottom of my heart to all the parents out there, they always do the best that they can. And at this stage in my life, I, I'm having this challenge to sort of help him eventually identify himself. Now, we're lucky because Toronto is super diverse and we're living in different times and Lady Gaga, as you said. But at the same time, I want Ion to be an, uh, an Iranian-Canadian. I almost said Iranian-American because uh, we're talking about Charlie. <laughs> right. Sorry. It, it, I had to think about that one for a second. An Iranian-Canadian. Mm. I, I don't want him to identify as an Iranian or a Canadian because he is definitely of both. And I, I think as... Um, my this is my opinion, of course. I think it's really important for all of us Iranians out there, especially those of us living outside of Iran, to give credit to wherever else we're living. Like Shali is so grateful. She kept saying, I'm so grateful to be here in San Diego or in the US. I'm so happy to be in it. Like she has this pride in her because she knows that a lot of that success is owed to the location mm. she's in, right? And that's the bitter truth. I mean, this is the diaspora. This is exactly what we're constantly circling around. Keon? I, I think for most of us that grew up in the West as an Iranian, we all struggled with identity issues. You know, growing up as a kid, um, most of my friends were white Canadian girls and they would all have sleepovers and they were a little more liberal. Their parents would allow them to do more. And my mom would say, no, you're different. You like you don't sleep over. You're an Iranian girl. We do it differently. Hmm. So it, it, it's hard. We don't and sleep. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't you know, sleep I wasn't there will allowed. be no sleeping. I had a curfew. I, I wasn't allowed to sleep over. 
whatever. So it's it's difficult to balance that the Iranian side and Canadian side. Can I can I ask you, Kiana? Mm-hmm. I, I've never asked you this, and I and by all means, if if you don't feel comfortable, but uh, you've always seemed so confident to me. Did you ever go through a period where you were teased or where you felt like an I was outsider? actually funny enough. In, I grew up in the '90s, early 2000s, and a lot of what I saw in the media, on, whether it be movies, music videos, I would see blonde white girls. And as a kid, I remember thinking, "Wow, I wish I was blonde. I wish I was blue-eyed." And this is sad, but it wasn't until Jennifer Lopez came out, and you know, she had curves and the all great, that. The great actually, Iranian I, icon. Yeah, <laughs> she's not Iranian, but she's, but from she's ethnic. Spawn, I think. But she's, <laughs> Actually, many will argue that she has some Iranian, but no, it, it's funny. Iranian, yeah, of Jennifer. This might be too much information, but I have, uh, like, I have quite a curvy behind and uh, at the age 12 and I remember white girls would say you know Kian like if you lay your lay against the wall you can flatten that like it was seen as an issue so I would do that I would oh actually my lay my butt to try to flatten my butt and then Jennifer Lopez came out and made it cool to have a big butt and girls right. were turning to me Kian how did you get a bit like you know and then so looking at people like Shali Zomoradi <laughs> like having someone Iranian to look up to as a symbol and think wow like I can do that too she's Iranian she's you know did this beauty pageant and she has a voice she's on TV so that it's it's so important for kids to yeah. relate right. to someone on screen. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Thank yeah. you, everybody. The, the Rook Roundtable, Nila Farghorashi, uh, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza. Can and, I add something? Well, th- that know. was so nice what Keon said. <laughs> she gave, she gave of herself. <laughs> he wants to talk a about shout out to J-Lo. Now you want to. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to talk about his big butt, too. Bebin. All right. Uh, Shia John, uh, what, what is it that you want to say? When I called, actually, it's related to Professor Parhang. Okay. When I called Professor Parhang, and uh, I want to check the line before we, uh, we did the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I asked him to um, uh, recite me a, po- a, a, a poem, and uh, he recited me a poem of Hafiz, which is very related to the hope that I. Mm. Can I say those? phrase of Hafez? Sure, yeah. He said, Bovad aya ke dar meykade ha bugshayand gireh az kar furubaste ma bugshayand agar az bahr dil zahid khudbin bastand dil qavi dar ke az bahr khuda bugshayand. It's related that uh, keep going there's Hope. light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's light there's at light the end of the road. The yeah. There's light Fabulous. at the end of the tunnel. And I think just, just because Shaya brought this up about Professor uh, Farhang, I just want to say um, let's have an open heart and open mind. Yeah. Thank you, Shai. Are there any other long poems that you would like to read before we get? <laughs> because the show is already an hour and a half in. There's lots of time for. Uh, I don't know where you discovered this Hafez. I mean, you must have. Is it the new guy, right? Nobody's ever heard of Hafez. And there would be no other other opportunities to to speak the poetry of Hafez. What's impressive to me that he heard it once from Farhang and he just recited it. That is impressive. Like, it, and it was a beautiful. Thank you. Yes, Merci, Shai. Thank you. Yeah. All right, it's time for Letters of the Week. All right, so 
So last week on episode 27, we had an interview with veteran journalist and producer Mohammad Manzarpour about the Iranian regime's latest decision to execute three young protesters. Plus, we had the Rook Roundtable to discuss the responsibilities of collective action in the diaspora with poet and activist Bahar Al-Masi in the guest chair. And we had a feature interview with Bahman Panahi from Paris who joins us to discuss his beautiful blend of calligraphy and music that he calls music calligraphy. Ah, that's unique. Hope. So we have a Sultan last name listed as BC on YouTube. He says, please remind your guest, Mrs. Almasi, that not everybody was quiet about the Aban killings. You aren't hearing from the people on the streets of Iran and echoing their needs, especially towns other than Tehran. I apologize, but you're all outside of Iran and never go there and are very much out of touch with reality on the streets of Iran. Let's talk to the average people that are not just professors. Jianjian, with all due respect, for a topic like this, you need someone better than a poet. If you want to see how united Iranians are, look at Iranians around you in Toronto or Vancouver. They are very far from united. The Iranians that fought in the war were raised during the Shah times. Okay. Yeah. Thank heavy. you, Sultan BC. Um, can I respond to a couple of those things? Yeah, please do. Well, first of all, uh, it's a very good point that we're not in touch with the reality of the streets of Iran or we're not on the streets of Iran. That's not what we deal with necessarily in this program. That's not what Bahar was speaking about, uh, being people being quiet in the diaspora, not in Iran. Her whole point was we should be supporting the people in Iran on the streets in Iran and that the diaspora has been too quiet. So maybe that was missed somehow. Um, in terms of uh, 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 Sultan John uh, saying, with all due respect, you need someone better than a poet. I, I actually disagree with you. Look, there are myriad experts that can be talking about these things. We, The, the, the intent of this roundtable is to uh, have people of uh, Iranian descent uh, um, from different walks of life uh, talk about uh, how uh, share their stories and talk about how the issues that exist in the diaspora are affecting them if you want just policy analysts or experts there's enough places out there for you it's in Farsi go to BBC Persian and uh, you'll see a bunch of policy wonks talking about things uh, and so you can find it there this uh, I would actually love to hear from a poet and someone like her who uh, is active in social media and cares uh, and is sitting in the diaspora saying what can I do her perspective I think is is an important one I agree and um Finally, just on the point of uh, Iranians being united or not, Sultan, you should listen to the uh, episode before with Bob Payami because you'll hear me make the exact point that you made. Uh, but uh, having said all of that, I really appreciate the letter. Good point. Yeah. Merci. Well, responded to. Anybody else want to say anything about it? No, but I think actually in the that roundtable, we did mention the the, the disunity in the Iranian diaspora. Yeah. Even, so yeah. uh, we, we, we sort of mentioned that. I think he was just adding to that. Yep. Yeah. And so, of course, this week on episode 28, we had the feature interview with the wonderfully energetic San Diego broadcaster Shali Zomorati. So a lot of people have uh, have written about her. They, It seems like most people agree that she's just wonderful. Um, we have a Farah K on YouTube wrote, it was a brilliant interview with an even more brilliant person. Shali is an amazing woman. Thanks for the job you've been doing, Gian. Didn't she say thanks for the great job? 
Ah, yes, she did. You can read better than I well, can. Well, I have that letter in front of me. <laughs> Thanks and for I, the job. So you just dropped the great <laughs> that makes, part. That makes I love sense. this. The fabulous Keon. I can't what even read. What's your problem with Gion, Keon? <laughs> 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 Apparently, I can't read. I think Thanks that's the Thanks for the job you've been doing, Thanks Gion. the job. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. It was an interview with a brilliant person. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for the job. It's a brilliant interview. Uh, by the way, is, is it not Faro? Shia, do you Farah. know Farah? Farah. 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 Shia's smiling. He's yeah. like, you got it right, Keon. Don't let Gian tell you otherwise. <laughs> I was trying to get Shia's <laughs> way in on pronunciations. All right, All right. So then we have a Jeron Escandari on YouTube wrote, In awe with Shali's blissful character, happy face. I mean, if they can pronounce Daenerys Targaryen, they sure should pronounce Shali Zumaradi in full HD. I think it's Daenerys. Daenerys. Did you not watch Game Di- of Thrones? Daenerys. I did, but it's well, been so the, long. It was Daenerys. But yeah, it's yeah. spelled Daenerys. It is Daenerys. spelled strangely, Daenerys. yes. Yes, okay. Daenerys. <laughs> anyway. I don't know why I felt the need to correct <laughs> you, really, you on that. On a it's not really fictional character. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, some Game right, of Thrones identified. I'll get it right next time might, we discuss yeah. this. Um, uh, we have a Seda Marie Khachikion. Um, by the way, any relation to... Uh, Erwin. Yeah. Who is going to be a guest be. on our show very yeah. soon. Maybe that's next a, week, I think. Yeah, yes. that's Erwin Khachikian, the, uh, the great... Uh, you know this name because it's got key on at the end, right? It does, is that yeah. Why that's you're so how happy? I know. Khachikian. I've never seen you so happy. <laughs> yeah, get that's why you say Khachikian. Uh Erwin is... Uh, uh, he's He's been working with um, Niaz and Nabob, yes. this, uh, uh, this Iranian-French singer-songwriter they've been doing some great stuff recently so Shia and I we, we were talking about we got to get Erwin on the show and so I hopefully next week he's mm-hmm. on he's on the program but sorry Seda Marie Seda Marie Khachikian sounds Armenian it must be for sure for sure on YouTube she wrote she's a real star an absolutely amazing person the perfect mom wife sister daughter and a great professional proud of being Iranian bravo Shali go ahead and rock Nicely said. Um, we have a Rana Jamshid on YouTube wrote, We love Shali here in San Diego. She's a huge asset to the Iranian community and loved by everyone. I agree. She is a huge asset. Um, then we have a Reza Falahian on Facebook wrote, Gian, thanks thanks for everything that you're doing here. Shali is amazing. Mm-hmm. And we have a Parinaz Talerani on Facebook wrote, Thank you, Gian. Another awesome job. Uh, Sarah Swanson on Facebook wrote, What a delight. Then we have a Kathy Rosine. She wrote, Love her. She's such an inspiration. And then a Jim Monajemi on Facebook wrote, She's an amazing woman. Thank you, dear Jian, for your great job. So we get the idea. People really love yeah. Charlie. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. all been positive. Naturally. Yeah, yeah. And look at that. You've got it's to send this to her. She's just, I know. you know, I know. if yeah. she ever needs a confidence boost, it's our... our For uh, sure. Yeah. She, seems, she seems like she needs I'm, a confidence boost. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. I myself, I've looked up to her since I was a teenager. Yeah, I think that's pretty that. huge. Yeah. If someone told me they've looked up to me their whole life, I'd be... Yeah, my ego would be boosted. Anyway, moving on. Oh, look at that. It's letter of the week. Letter of the week. Letter of the week. Oh. The sound of... Three people clapping yeah. for the letter of the week. And actually, actually even the, though there's four of us. Okay, I can clap too, you guys. 
Um, so last week on episode 27, we had the Rook Roundtable where the subject of collective activism in the Iranian diaspora came up. And dearest Captain Reza, my colleague, yes. made the comment that he's not a, a political person and usually avoids any political involvement. So we have <laughs> we have a user, my Nikon, on YouTube responded to that. He says, the claim that one is not involved or interested in politics is wildly unreasonable, especially for an Iranian immigrant living in Canada. Politics and the, di and the diaspora are inseparable. The accomplished Iranian songwriter Janati Atayi goes even further and suggests in many of his songs and interviews that politics is inherent in our daily lives, that many of our routines and unremarkable decisions are based on our political views. In his own words, the naming of our children is as much a political arrangement as the decision to forgo the vote. Selecting silence and indifference is a political position. Similarly, claiming not to be political is itself a political statement. Ooh, that was a heavy loaded It was. Letter. Attack on yeah. Reza. <laughs> Attack. <laughs> uh, my Nikon, thank you for that. So I, I'm, I mean, Reza, that I actually understand what my Nikon is saying here, uh, that all things are political, particularly for Iranians, uh, that you can't, that, that by, by not saying anything, you're, that's a, a tantamount to a political position. How do you respond? Um, to each their own. <laughs> that's it come on <laughs> fight he's entitled or he or she my nikon is entitled to he or her or his opinion and uh no i still stand by my statement I if someone was to take away all your rights what would you do punch him right in the face <laughs> well that, you, would. that would make you a political person that's true right? there we have it the letter of the week uh and some debate after it thank you Thank you, guys. Thank you for the Rook Roundtable. Thank you, Nilfar Gorashi, for uh, returning to the Rook Roundtable. We will undoubtedly see you again soon. Thank Thanks you, Gian. Thank you, everyone. Ruby Shia, Captain Reza, the fabulous Keon. Thanks to the entire Rook team, uh, Merida, Mohammed, Ponta, Susan, uh, everybody who uh, put so much time into the Shahram, the people who are helping us out. And thanks again to York National Realty, uh, Farid and his team for being so supportive. York National Realty. Uh, let's go out on some Homayun. I don't need to say Homayun Shajarian. We know who I'm talking about, right? This is Aryesh Ali's, but this is actually the Kurti remix that I'm a big fan of from 2017. Homayun. Oh, by the way, I forgot. We have our new website up rookmedia.com all the episodes are there some extras the opening theme song and it's full uh, a couple little video treats thanks again so much for listening Mizunbashi
Kafi afyumu 